How can you defeat your cravings so that you can stop feeling guilty when you overindulge? Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist who has spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work on his own battle with obesity, with his own patients, and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Welcome to the Best You Podcast, where we explore how to improve all six areas of life, health, personal, career, financial, spiritual, and relational. My name is Nick Carrier, an entrepreneur, fitness trainer, and motivational speaker. I was going down the traditional path of working a nine to five until my mentor saw something in me, I quit my job, and started my own business. My mission is to help you gain clarity on how to become your best you. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist who used to struggle with obesity, binge eating, and guilt and shame for years. Then he determined what he needed to do to improve his psychological relationship with food and with himself. Now he helps others defeat their cravings, feel confident in their ability to resist tempting foods, and bounce back quickly if they fall off. So get ready to learn how to defeat your cravings and have a better relationship with food with Dr. Glenn Livingston. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston, and this is his second time on the Best You Podcast, and I'm super excited to have him back because I remember the first time that I had him on about a year ago. I had so much great feedback around our conversation, and I know this one is going to be even better and, and more great feedback because all of you guys listening out there know that when it comes to eating healthy and being healthy, part of the equation is just knowing what to do. But maybe 80% of the equation is knowing how to do it and knowing kind of the psychology behind it. And I can throw at you what you should be eating and what you should be doing for exercise, all that kind of stuff, repeatedly over and over again. But no matter how much you know, it's really about the execution and kind of like the psychology of it. And so Dr. Livingston is going to talk to us a lot, of, a lot today about the psychology of overcoming unhealthy choices, especially from the eating standpoint. And so, Glenn, I just want to start off today by you giving us a little bit of your backstory of kind of overcoming your own overeating issues and really from the sense of like, how did you change your identity from being someone who overeats to being somebody who could be in control of their eating consumption? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. It's a bit of a crazy story. I'll try to make it short. Um, if you ever ran by the Woodbury Country Deli in the late 90s or early 2000s, you might have found they were out of pizza and chocolate because I was there before you. So, I, I, Which is my cute way of saying that I, I'm not just a doctor that works with overeaters. I had a serious problem myself. I was almost 300 pounds. My triglycerides were over 1,000. And doctors were telling me that I was going to you know, die before I was 40 and that kind of thing. Um, and being a psychologist from a family of 17 therapists, I um, took the love yourself thin route. I tried to anyway. And I talked to the best therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, and I took medication and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I went on a spiritual journey. And it, it was a soul enriching journey. I feel like it made me a better person, but it didn't make me a better eater. I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. Three things changed my mind about the approach. Um, moving from a love yourself thin paradigm to a be the alpha dog of your own mind paradigm. Uh, the first thing was the food industry. I was consulting for the food industry. I don't have kids and I never commuted 
my ex-wife was traveling for business. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So I, in addition to my clinical practice, I consulted for the food industry um, and the pharma industry. I was, I was on the wrong side of the war, basically. Um, and I saw them engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and, you know, and I think I said salt. And, and it's all engineered to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you the nutrition to feel satisfied. And that has nothing to do with my personal psychology. It has nothing to do with the fact that my mom had dropped me on her, on my head or that her mom had dropped her on her head or you know, that I peeked at my sister when she was in the bathtub when I was a kid. It, none of that. None of those psychological conflicts have anything to do with my overeating. And, um, and, and I also was reading a bunch about addiction and alternative treatments. I ran across a book by Jack Trimpey called Rational Recovery. And he really talked about the bifurcated mind. He said, we've got the rational mind, but then we've got this primitive mind um, that overrides us. And he advocated a very strict separation. The way I accomplished that with food, he works mostly with drugs and alcohol. The way I accomplished that with food was to create very clear black and white lines so that I would know when I was having a healthy food thought versus an unhealthy food thought. Now, this is where I start to go against the culture because the culture says to just use guidelines and I'll tell you why that's wrong in a, in a minute or it's wrong in most cases. Um, I, I, I made a rule that said, for example, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again because I had a lot of trouble with chocolate during the week. And that way, this is the embarrassing part. That way I could separate my higher self from my lower self and I would say, if I'm in a Starbucks and there's a big hairy chocolate bar on the counter and it's calling to me um, and I hear this voice on my head saying, you know, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight. Just have a couple of bites. I'll go, whoa, who's talking here? That's not me. That's my inner pig. And it's squealing for pig slop. Chocolate is pig slop on a weekday. I don't eat pig slops. I don't let farm animal tell me what to do. This was um, not going to be something that I taught. By the way. This, I, if, if you told me then that I was going to have millions of readers and people were going to point at me and go pig guy, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't have done it. Um, but this is what, that's what I did. And um, I won't say that it was a miracle, like I was instantaneously better, but it, it carved out this separation and it gave me the ability to wake up at the moment of impulse, at the moment of temptation and consider making a better decision. From there, there were a lot of things that I could do with that space between stimulus and response, which took me a lot of years to figure out. Um, I could figure out how my lower self was going to rationalize doing that. Like, it'll be just as easy to start your diet tomorrow. No, it won't, because the principle of neuroplasticity says that if you, if you say, I think I'll just start tomorrow, and then you reward that thought with a chocolate bar, you're more likely to have that thought again tomorrow. So you're actually mm -hmm. digging your deeper hole. And if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging, just use the present moment to be healthy. So one thing I could do, which was the bulk of my recovery back then, over the next couple of years, I kept a journal trying to figure out all those justifications. And I disempowered those justifications, making it very uncomfortable, psychologically uncomfortable. I'll get into your identity question. making pr Providing a sense of cognitive dissonance um, if I wanted to go ahead and go down that previously grease chute, which now seemed like it was covered with sand and, and glass. Um, what I found was over time by working on that rule, and I wasn't 100% with it, but over time, it I realized 
it was my rule. Nobody was telling me what to do. I could change it if I want to. I could adopt rules that I actually would comply with. And it was silly to make rules that I wouldn't. I also realized that eventually I stopped craving things that I was never going to do because it's a waste of energy. Like if I'm never going to have chocolate on a weekday, the craving goes away. And we can talk about the extinction curve and why that's scientifically true. Um, and then something really odd started to happen to me where I started to feel like, well, I'm just a person who doesn't have chocolate during the week. Eventually I became a person who didn't have chocolate at all. But And then I realized that character trumps willpower. Like character is what we habitually do at the moment of temptation. If I know that I'm not a person who eats chocolate during the week, then I just don't do that. The same way that I know that I'm not the kind of guy that runs up to attractive women on the bus and kisses them, strangers, or you know pushes little ladies down on the street or takes the waitress's tip when nobody can see it on the diner's table. Uh, the same way that I know that I'm not that kind of person, I don't succumb to those temptations. I'm also the kind of person that doesn't have chocolate during the week. And eventually, not right away, you have to go through this kind of, we'll talk about the extinction curve, but eventually it just becomes part of your identity and it's much, much easier. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was so good. That was so good. There were so many different good things in there. I, I want to pick up right where you essentially left off the character Trump's willpower that is so good, and I'm gonna to have to steal that character Trump's willpower. That's so, because it's something something I talk about a lot, but I, I haven't been able to concisely framed it as that. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of context and how I talk about this whole identity, the whole identity thing, and the whole spectrum of kind of knowing what to do and and actually doing it. I think that there's that imaginary gap, right, of like telling yourself to do something and actually doing it. And I talk about it from the lens of there's a couple of things that will close the gap from A to B. Sometimes it's motivation and willpower. Like sometimes your motivation and willpower are super high and no matter what happens, you're going to do it just because you're really motivated. But oftentimes that's not the case. And the other thing that helps to close the gap is what I say is setting yourself up for success. And that's a number of different things. It's planning ahead, making your goals kind of more realistic and accountability and a lot of different things like that. But then I think the point where I'm not even exactly sure how, where to categorize it within the gap, but it's like once your identity has changed, it doesn't matter if you have motivation. It doesn't matter if you set yourself up for success. You're going to do it anyway because that is just what your character does. And the way that I realize that is when I'm driving on a long road trip now for the last few years, I have no temptation to go stop at a McDonald's. I have no temptation to stop at a fast food place. I don't care how not motivated I am or how badly I've planned for my meals. I just don't do it because I'm not the person who's, I'm not the kind of person who stops at a fast food joint. So pick up where I just kind of left off and talk to me about the extension curve and talk to me a little bit about how you see maybe what I just kind of broke down. Um, well, I, I think what you're describing is that um, you need to set the bar low enough so that you don't have to have your mojo to do it. You know, for, for, for example, um, when I'm trying to get someone to go to the gym, I will say, what's the smallest, easiest step you could take every night to get yourself to go to the gym? Maybe it's putting your, your gym clothes out, you know, right by the door before you go. Um, and so you make a rule for yourself that says, I will never again go to bed without putting my gym clothes out by the door. Notice I didn't say you have to go to the gym. Notice I didn't say you have to work out for an hour and a half. I just said you have to put your gym clothes out before. What happens with that is that it's easy enough 
that you'll do it even when you don't feel like it. Mm. And you'll observe yourself doing a constructive thing. It's the very beginning of a behavior chain that leads to more constructive things. You'll observe yourself doing a constructive things day in and day out, reliably and consistency. So the part of your brain that forms an identity that says, this must be part of my character, it starts to take hold. I'm a guy that gets ready for the gym before I go to bed, right? And because that's so easy, you start to feel some sense of success. You start to change the other kind of evidence that you collect. Well, what else does a guy who puts his gym clothes out before bed, maybe he puts out all the ingredients for a smoothie in a plastic bag so he can pop it in the blender in the morning. Um, Maybe he sets up a spreadsheet to track his progress and, you know, puts that in before bed also. So before you know it, you've got this kind of excitation, inspiration that stems from the identity that you're building in terms of the extinction curve. Um, There's a lot people need to understand about cravings that they don't understand. People think, for example, that when you, people think that having very strong cravings is a sign of a sick mind, like there must be something wrong with you. There are even Mm -hmm. whole movements that will say you've got a chronic progressive, um, you know, mysterious disease inside of you and you're not like other people, you're kind of broken. I actually think the opposite is true. Because if you think about 100,000 years ago, we had to be very good at not only detecting food sources, but getting ourselves motivated to go find it and do what was necessary to retrieve it. You know, mm-hmm. And so we would notice where the chimps were going. If they were headed towards the banana tree, we would have to be motivated to go find them. And then when we got there, we'd have to be motivated to climb the tree and get the bananas, unless some of them fell to the ground. So when we detected a chimp in the environment, we would start to get this craving for bananas, right? The people who had stronger cravings got more bananas and survived. The people who had weaker cravings didn't. Having strong cravings in our evolutionary history um, was a sign of a, it was a survival advantage, a healthy, strong mind. In our modern food environment, that healthy, strong mind attaches to these bags and boxes and containers that are, you know, being manufactured by men with white suits and mustaches that laugh all the way to the bank, right? Um, I mean, Lewis Black said he knew that the end of the world was coming when he walked out of a Starbucks and there was another Starbucks across the street. I think you could say the same for the food, you know, for the fast food um, markets. Um, You certainly can find a convenience store in almost every corner. There are hundreds of thousands of calories available for not that much effort. That doesn't change the fact that your brain is doing what it's supposed to do. Now, the good news is that... You can teach your brain to label a craving as dormant. So if you make a rule for yourself that says, I will never stop at a fast food restaurant on the way home from work, then um, the first time you pass McDonald's, you'll be going, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, I really want to stop, right? This part of your brain will be screaming and saying, you know, just go get the burger and nobody gets hurt. Um, You pass the McDonald's, it's going to make you a little bit miserable. Um, because you're used to getting a hit of dopamine. That's the pleasurable feeling that motivates you to go get the burger. But then it's going to take dopamine away and bring it below normal to try to get you to turn around and go to McDonald's. You ride that out because you've decided to become a person that doesn't stop at McDonald's. The next time you stop, it'll be a little less and a little less. Now, here's the other thing people don't know, is that before it gets labeled dormant, 
your brain doesn't want to give up on its sources. So it's going to throw a little temper tantrum. So people go through the first three days, four days, maybe six or seven days. And then all of a sudden there's this giant spike, maybe worse of a craving than they ever had before. And they say, I can't do this. This thing is going to torture me until I give in. I can't live with that torture forever, right? But that's not how it works. The extinction curve, when you look at the research, after that tantrum, if you write out the tantrum, and we'll talk about things you can do to write it out and how you can calm your brain otherwise. If you write it out, then it starts going steadily down until somewhere around the you know, 28 to 30 day mark for a habit like this. There's a couple of little, little tiny tantrums. And then the craving is labeled dormant. What that means is I'm not going to bother Nick about McDonald's on the way home anymore. Um, if Nick decides to stop at McDonald's on the way home, I'm going to get really excited and that whole learning is going to be reactivated and you're going to have to go through that extinction curve again. But if Nick doesn't stop at McDonald's, the brain doesn't want to waste energy on craving McDonald's. So it leaves you alone and says, we better go find other food sources. You've started to become a person who just sails past McDonald's with ease. So mm, I love it. So this extinction turn your extinction curve you're talking about is a, is it like a dopamine curve that you're ta like talking about the levels of dopamine, how it goes up and down across time when you're trying to eliminate cravings? Is that the best way to talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, you don't really have to understand the science behind it. You need to know that the, right. the cravings will spike and then they'll go down. And um, you don't want to think there's something wrong with you when it spikes and you don't want to get too cocky when it goes down. You got to ride yeah. it all the way up. And if you've decided you want to eliminate a habit, then take it seriously. Don't go into battle with a plastic helmet. Think about what else am I going to have besides McDonald's? Do we need to mm. prep, prep something on the way home for myself? Um, what am I going to do when the craving hits? Is there some other authentic pleasure that I'm going to think about or fantasize about? Um, is there, you know, a, a um, I don't know, brown rice and tofu that's waiting for you at home. You're going to pop in the microwave, make it really easy, pre-prepare things, teach yourself how to breathe your way through the cravings because they don't last that long if you learn how to do that. Teach yourself how to refute what the you know inner food monster is going to say. Oh, come mm -hmm. on. Everybody has a little McDonald's sometimes. Um, and remind yourself beyond that, that cravings are usually attached to more than one food signal. About 80% of the problem will usually be attached to one food signal, but a lot of people give up because they'll do what you did. They'll stop having McDonald's on the way home, and then they'll be out with their college buddies, and you know they and their college buddies used to go to McDonald's all the time, and you've already had 30 or 40 exposures to the drive home. You've gone through the craving cycle, but you haven't had 30 or 40 exposures with your college buddies, so all of a sudden, your brain says, oh, maybe this is a sign that the burger is available and it goes crazy all over again. But that's usually just about, you know, 10, 15, 20% of the problem. And you've got such a sense of success and identity from what you've done before that you can power through that. Mm. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that was good. I kind of want to stay on that topic because I know that for me personally, that last part comes into play a lot. Like when I'm home and it comes into play with a lot of people that are listening to the, the episode right now as well. When I'm home and I'm in my routine, I'm in the environment that I spend a lot of time in, I'm healthy. I'm good. I'm, I'm not going to eat sweets. I'm not going to drink too much alcohol. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be good. But as soon as I go out of town or I travel or I'm around certain people or I'm in a certain environment, 
then it's so much harder to defeat the cravings. Talk to us about maybe how to defeat the cravings when we're in an environment that we're not as used to or haven't been in in a long time. Okay. Well, first of all, understand that you're correct to ask the question, that it's a, a different environment and it does re- it's a little more weight on the bar if you're doing squats, you know, so you have to go in prepared. Um, secondly, we have something we call conditional rules. I think of your everyday rules, like I will, I will never stop for McDonald's on the way home or I'll never eat McDonald's again. I think of that as your everyday bullseye. Um, it might be that since you know it's going to be more difficult when you are uh, traveling with your buddies, it might be you draw a second rung around the bullseye that says, when I'm traveling with my buddies, I can stop for one meal out of three days or one meal out of, and you make a very specific boundary. The key here is not to allow any room for decision-making because decision-making requires willpower. Your willpower is going to be lower. So draw the very specific boundary so that you know exactly what you're going to do while you're traveling and you should be okay. That, that what happens is um, we talked about cravings coming in response to stimuli in the environment. The cravings will align themselves with a particular signal. Um, the signal can be a little more complex, just like we know we're allowed to drive through a green light and stop at a red light. Um, you can have a conditional signal that tells you when the reinforcement is available, when it's not. And your brain learns that in the same way that your brain would learn if a slot machine only paid off on Saturday morning at 8.30, you wouldn't bother playing it the rest of the week. You'd eventually figure that out. So so you can use these conditional rules to manage the difficult situations. It's often a good idea. Some people, you know, they can't have the burger no matter what. So, some people just get carried away and they have to eliminate it completely. But you see, the, the key here is to know that overeating isn't a unitary habit. It's a collection of habits. And you mm-hmm. need to identify each one of them. Um, your inner food monster will say, this makes it overwhelming. You can't do it. It's not true. There aren't that many for any one given person. But you need to identify all of them and make a plan to extinguish all of them. And then you become the kind of person that you want to you want to be mm. with food. Mm, that's good. That's good. I love that. Um, one of the things that I'm super interested in, and I know that you talk about, is the difference between when somebody should abstain completely versus moderation. Now, for me personally, the way that I've coached people a lot over the last number of years is always from the moderation standpoint, always from like, okay, what are you, where are you currently? Let's improve a little bit from where you currently are and then continually opt, optimize it from there and, and continue to get better from there. However, I've started to think a lot about over the last year about how, you know, when people make dramatic changes like cutting out drugs, cutting out alcohol, things like that. For most of the most of those types of people, it has to be a hard cutoff, like cigarettes. Sometimes it has to be a hard cutoff, and there's no weaning yourself off of it. And I think one of the huge benefits of sometimes abstaining completely is you have completely removed yourself from the previous identity. You have com- you've built this new identity for yourself, um, and so that oftentimes leaves no decision making uh, to be made. You've already made the decision that I'm not doing it. But I also know from my personal experience and from my experience for coaching, I feel like most people need moderation for most of the habits that they're trying to implement or trying to avoid. And so I want you to just talk about the topic of abstaining completely versus moderation and 
how how we should navigate what habits maybe we should abstain from what habits maybe we should moderate and and who what might be better for what kind of person okay i'd, I'd like to introduce a metaphor that i think will yeah. help you reconcile these two different uh, positions that you're trying to reconcile um I think the idea that everything in moderation is okay is a little dangerous for a lot of people. Um, and I want to remind you that there's no doctor that's going to diagnose them with it, someone with a white sugar and flour deficiency. Um, you know, so so it's not like you're going to eliminate nutrition if you eliminate some of these things. So you don't have to be so scared of that as long as you're replacing the calories with something nutritious. Um, I guess I should say I'm not a medical doctor or a dietitian, but I, I still stand by the fact that no doctor is going to tell you you have a white sugar deficiency. Um, okay. I would like you to think, Nick, about a city traffic planner. If you were planning out the traffic patterns in the city, you would have two simultaneous tasks. You would be required to optimize the free flow of traffic so that commerce could transpire and people could socialize. Um, at the same time, you'd be charged with protecting the health and safety of the population. If you put traffic lights at every single intersection where they weren't necessary, your boss would say, wait a minute, I, I think you're unnecessarily restricting the free flow of traffic. Mm -hmm. If you fail to put traffic lights at dangerous intersections, your boss would say, this is too dangerous, we're having too many accidents. So your, your job is to navigate what intersections in that in that city require traffic lights? What intersections require stop signs? What intersections require yield signs? And I see you nodding. You can see where I'm going. There are some places where you will have a never rule. I will never eat chocolate again because I've tried 23 ways to Sunday. It just doesn't work. I lost a war with the chocolate bar in 1982, and that's it. Um, there are other things, and I find two out of three people for most substances, and it varies for each person and for each substance. Um, substance, I'm thinking like, you know, chocolate, sugar, flour, salt. Um, two out of three people can moderate with very specific conditional rules like we talked about for your, for your socialization party. Um, and everybody has the job of identifying their specific food economy. Everybody's like got their own little personal city that they're trying to navigate. And so when, when I work with a client, I ask them what's dogging them. Like what are the foods? They, and then I ask them, what role would you like that food to play in your life? I ask what's prevented them from getting to that result before. And we have a conversation where eventually it starts to become clear. Well, I really don't think I can have chocolate, but I could have sugar if it had some limits on it. And I could have pizza if it had some limits on it. And you know, we, just like a city traffic planner, we try to leave people as much freedom as possible. You want to, I think food is to be enjoyed and loved and, and you know, it's uh, in Judaism, they say l'chaim before the eat, it's like, you know, to life. I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't apologize for loving food. I still love food. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I love it between the traffic lights. I love it between the stop signs. I love it between the yield signs. Um so that's what I think. I, as a practical matter, there are two things that I've found we can do to make a determination. Um, and it's always up to the client to decide whether they want to take the risk or not, because it's always risky to use a conditional rather than a never if you're in trouble with the food. But if you've tried more than four times, four different types of conditional rules to moderate a, a food or you know substance, probably you're going to have to, it's going to have to go. 
please don't shoot the messenger. But if you tried more than four different things and it's not working, I, I've seen a very, very low percentage of success after that. The second thing is if you write two different rules, like maybe one rule will be, I will never eat chocolate again. And another rule would be, I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekends and no more than two ounces per day, right? Then just play a wild imagination game and imagine that it's a year later. And for each of the rules, go through this exercise. See yourself going through a typical day a year later if you did your best to adopt each of the rules. What do you see? Not, not just with your, your weight and your looks and your clothing, but what about your energy level and your digestion and how you relate to other people and your productivity and your kids? But see, see the life, see a day in the life completely. Then compare and contrast those two days. If the, if the day which includes the moderation is much worse than the day that includes the never, then you probably have your answer. Mm. And, and don't shoot the messenger. Yeah. No, I love that next part is like having the conversation with yourself about long-term, a year from now, whatever, which one do I think is the best rule for me? Because I think internally, if people ask themselves that question about whatever substance, you know, they're talking about, then the never is like, holy, holy crap, there's no way I could ever, ever completely give that thing up. But then some people are like, I know that anytime I do it, I'm just going to overdo it. So I need to, I need to give well, it up. And what are you giving up by not giving it up? Like if, if chocolate is really dogging you and you're carrying 20 extra pounds and you have high blood pressure or, you know, cardiovascular risks and you don't look the way you want to look in a bathing suit and you can't wear the clothes that you want and you don't have the energy that you want to play with your kids and your dog and hike mountains and, you know, be a, be a thin, confident person in the world. What are you giving up by not giving it up? See, it's never mm -hmm. a question of your pig thinks that it's either, oh, indulge and have a lot of fun or, or you know, bite your nails and be miserable. But yeah. no, sometimes it's two hard choices and it doesn't want you to see that. You're giving up yeah. a lot by, by not giving it up. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. We always think about the bad thing that we're giving up rather than what actually we would be giving up if we did do the thing. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Um, one of the things I really want to make sure we touched on and you talked about it before we, we hopped on the screw it, just do it attitude or mindset, because I know that I fall into it. So many people that I work with fall into it of you kind of touched on it a little bit before. If you're driving by a McDonald's, you think, ah, screw it. If I have McDonald's this one time, it's not going to be that big a deal. I'm just going to do it this one time. Or, you know, there's a, you go to a party and then there's cake or you go to a thing and there's donuts. And it's like, what's one donut really going to do? It's not going to be that big a deal. And the reality of the situation is, yeah, that one, that one donut in this isolated moment is not going to be that big a deal. So screw it, just do it. And that's what everybody, that's what we end up falling in the trap of. So talk to us about how we can get over the screw it, just do it mindset so that we don't. Okay. Well, first of all, you have to know that it's happening. So you have to have this clear rule. And I'd recommend while you're going through the extinction curve, um, which takes about 30 days for, for daily habits, while you're going through that, that you read the rule out loud every day in the morning, just so it's fresh in your mind. That way, you know that any thought that suggests that you break the rule isn't you, it's your inner food monster or your gremlin or your pig, right? Um, so that that's what kind of pries apart the moment and opens up the space that you can make another choice. Um, you can do what I did, which is the fix your thinking approach, 
which is to say, well, it's never really just one. Uh, you know, I, I say that it's just one, but then it's why not one more? That won't hurt. And then before I know it, I ate the whole box. Um, so you could fix your thinking. And a lot of times that works. But then you can also understand that when the reptilian brain feels the need to push aside the rational brain, that it's perceiving an emergency for some reason or another. It thinks that the donut is more important than your goals and your dreams and your previously committed to best intents, which you wrote down when you were of sound mind and body and had the fortitude and intellect to, to put it down on paper, right? So it's perceiving there to be something urgent. And so you can, you can prevent that and you can reverse it by attending to a lot of other self-care needs. The most common thing that makes people want to reverse their intent and say, screw it, just do it, is a lack of adequate regular nutrition. I, I find that when people come to me trying to break these habits and they, you know, they want to eat one meal a day or they want to do these long fasts and they want to use these tools to deprive their bodies of nutrition for a while. And I don't, I don't deny the medical benefits of fasting. Nevertheless, I find it's much harder to break these habits if you're trying to put your body through these fasting states because it perceives an urgent need for food. It wants resources. So for the first four, five, six months, when you're trying to break these habits, I suggest you have at least three meals a day, steady, reliable nutrition. Try to get a bunch of the junk out of your system and rely on more you know, whole natural foods, whether that's, you know, carnivore or vegetarian doesn't matter as much, but try to stay away from the junk uh, because the junk will spike your blood sugar and create more of those emergencies. There are other things that cause the false perception of emergency. Not enough sleep, not enough water, too much impinging upon you at work. Willpower is the ability to make good decisions. There are only so many good decisions you can make every day. If you are spending your days deciding what to do with this email or that email, and when does Jenny go to soccer practice, who's going to take her, and who's going to be in the meeting, and how do you coordinate it, and what should you wear to the meeting, um, every little one of those micro decisions burns a little bit of brain glucose. Not just the food decisions, and we're exposed to hundreds of food decisions every day, but all of the other decisions throughout the day burn a little brain glucose. So if you can cut down your decisions, take a couple of breaks throughout the day, that can help. Uh, getting enough sleep, getting enough water, getting enough fresh air. Um, the brain can perceive there to be an, an emergency if you're isolated for too long, we're social animals. And so if you don't have quite enough social connection. Now, none of this means that when this happens that you have to say, screw it, just do it. You can say, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Who's in charge here? You can disempower it. You can make another choice. Um, but it makes it, it's like more weight in the bar. The more of the things you don't take care of, it's more weight on the bar. It gets harder. Mm. Yeah, I loved your 7 to 11 breath technique. I want you to just touch on that real quick because like, I know when I was looking at it and looking at your stuff a few days ago and saw that, I've used that tool just in the last few days when... I mean, I always know breathing, focusing on your breath is important, but I haven't utilized it from the sense of if I'm getting a craving or anything like that before. And I, I've found it helpful just in the last couple of days. So tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah. And then I'll add one more technique that you could use. Too. Cool. Um, I got this from Lori Hammond, 
And she told me that when you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, that you're activating your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the nervous system that says, there's no emergency here. It's okay to rest and digest and let everything calm down. So you can breathe in for a count of seven and then out for a count of 11. I'm not doing it right now because it takes a little extra time. And you're signaling the brain. If you, for example, were being chased by a hungry bear, you would be going just the opposite of 7-11. You'd be going, you know, 4-4-4-4-4 or 2-2-2-2-2, right? So you can picture this as the opposite of being chased by a hungry bear. And you're basically telling the brain, I have everything I need right now. I have, and you can actually say that to yourself as a mantra. I have everything I need right now. Um, the other thing you can do is figure out what the authentic pleasure is that you can direct your mind to instead. For example, I recently decided that I had to give up decaffeinated coffee. I was drinking way too much of it. I haven't had caffeine for a very long time, but there is some caffeine in decaf and my blood pressure was going up a little bit and I didn't want to take medication. Um, and so I decided, okay, I got to get a little more serious and I have to give up decaf also. I start going through the extinction curve um, and I would notice that I had these fantasies about, it, it wasn't just about the caffeine and, and the coffee, it was about getting away from the computer, getting into my car, driving over to racetrack, that's a little coffee shop here. Um, they had this fresh coffee there. The people were really nice. Often they gave it to me for free and smile at me. Um, and there was a whole half hour of pleasure associated with that. So I needed to think of something that was equally as pleasurable. And so I started deciding to fantasize instead about mint tea with a plant-based milk or creamer. And I would say that's equally as delicious. And I would picture myself if I'm, if I'm, you know, working in the fantasy would start about going to racetrack to get the coffee. I would start to fantasize about making myself a tea instead and taking a five or 10 minute break and maybe even walking outside and saying hi to a few people and being a little bit social. Um, and so it was an active redirection of the fantasy the moment that the racetrack fantasy started. The moment the coffee fantasy started, I didn't let that fantasy grow up. And if you don't let it grow up, it doesn't become uncomfortable. So, so I, I killed it in the cradle and I replaced it with a baby that I wanted to nurture instead. Um, and you can do that for just about any craving. Like, I don't know what it would be for you, Nick, with McDonald's, but, um, you know, I'm sure there's something. Yeah, I mean... I feel like I don't have that many cravings on a regular basis. It's just if I'm, it'd be a sweet tooth every once in a while. That would be my thing. But no, those are those are awesome. I think the Seven Eleven breath technique is great. Um, I think, like you said, really figuring out what the authentic pleasure is that you're looking for. Oftentimes, people have cravings when they're bored, and it's like you're just bored. Go find something else to actually do right now. Or maybe people are seeking social interaction. Like there's a lot of different things that you're that are not maybe the or that are more of the root motivating factor behind doing something rather than eating the food or the substance. And, and, and what's really interesting is that people will give themselves permission to take a break, to go out to the coffee shop, but they won't give themselves permission to just sit and breathe or go talk to a friend or something. Yeah, that's, that's actually so true. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Well, uh, Glenn, before I ask the last question, I just want to acknowledge you. I love the work that I know you'd been doing since the last time I interviewed you. I love the work that you're doing now because like I said, to start off the interview, 
through my experience and my knowledge, you can tell people what to do, what to eat, how to exercise all day long. And that stuff's important and that stuff needs to be shared and that education needs to be provided. But the psychology behind it is 80% of 80% of the deal. It's like figuring out how to navigate your relationship with food and your psychology behind food is such a transformative piece of this puzzle that so many of us need to make sure that we're considering, we're thinking about, we're working on um, to help us get to the person that we want to be. And and you're such a profound, you have such a profound message in that space. And I know that I appreciate it. And I know that everybody else appreciates it as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, yeah. I, I was, I was almost 300 pounds when I knew exactly what I should be eating. So I, I resonate with that statement more than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, kudos to you for making the kudos to you for making the change. Um, and I know that people are going to want to go learn more about some of these specific strategies and stuff like that. So make sure you guys go to get his new book called defeat your cravings, the back door to weight loss. And you can go get that at defeatyourcravings.com and at defeatyourcravings.com. He has a bunch of amazing free resources, a few of which we actually kind of touched on during today's episode, like the moderation versus ab abstaining, and some of the other things. He's got a podcast there as well. So make sure you go to defeatyourcravings.com. Uh, any other good place that people should know about? Well, click the big blue button when you're there. And the good news is I, I just made the Kindle book free. I was just able to make the Kindle book free. So you can actually get the book for free in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We have other formats that are you know more traditional charge. But um, go to defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button, and um, starts all starts from there. Beautiful. Beautiful. Awesome, man. Well, Glenn, last question here is I think in order to get closer to the best version of yourself, it's both a constant journey and a unique journey. And so my question for you is if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to the best version of Glenn Livingston that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? I probably still need to give myself more permission to take breaks. Um, I, I'm a very driven person. I feel like I'm aware that I'm getting older and who knows how many more years I'll be able to work at this pace and pump out books the way that I'm pumping them out. And so I, I, but I think a little bit too driven sometimes and, um, you know, I have a burgeoning relationship, which I want to put some more time into and um, I already take plenty of time for uh, yoga and exercise and everything, but I need to take a little more time to, you know, we went to see the Van Gogh exhibit, which was fantastic the other day. And, uh, spend a little more time with my nephew or my niece and do the kind of things that I'll regret not doing in 20 years. That, mm. That's the biggest deal. Was that three things or do I, do I need more? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I was that three. I, I have given myself more permission to take breaks, give more time to my kind of like family relationships. Was there a, was there a third one in there that I missed? Um, might want to get a dog. I, I really, <laughs> was having, I, I haven't had a dog since I got divorced. It's been seven years and um okay. I, I really wow. like dog. I really like dogs, and I keep telling myself I'm too busy to have a dog. But the truth That's is, I'm not. And it, it might be really nice. So, well, that might be a good way to fulfill kind of the first one. Give yourself more permission to take breaks by getting a dog and going on walks and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe I'll go see some of the rescues. Um, yeah, in the next few weeks. Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, Glenn, there were so much, so many good things in here today around how to shift our psychology 
around our relationship with food and how to actually transform our, our identity and transform the type of person that we want to be and try transform the type of person that we actually are. So much good stuff today. Make sure you guys go get Defeat Your Cravings at DefeatYourCravings.com. There's going to be so many resources both in the book and on his website that allow you to make the transitions and the shifts that you need to make in order to get closer to the healthiest version of yourself and therefore the best version of yourself. But Glenn, that's all we got today. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, man. I love it. That interview was so good. There were so many practical steps that Glenn shared about how to change your identity, how you can make healthy decisions in the heat of the moment, and so much more. If you'd like to try out the one-week free trial of the virtual 10-week transformation, then be sure to go to nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Some of my biggest takeaways from Glenn are the following. Number one, character trumps willpower. The only sustainable way to improve your habits and your relationship with food is to change your identity, change the type of person you are and how you view yourself. Number two, the extinction curve is not always smooth sailing. Glenn talked about how when you're trying to remove a craving, you will have times when you feel an intense craving. You're going to have times when you feel no craving, and you're going to have times when you feel some craving. Learning how to navigate those times is key. And lastly, when you experience the screw it, just do it thought that goes on in your head, be aware of it, acknowledge it, and try one of his approaches like the 7-Eleven breathing technique to get you through it. If you can do these things, it will help you get closer to the healthiest version of yourself and ultimately closer and closer to your best you. 